from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this opportunity we have to come together as the church to hear your word, to worship you through song, to pray together, and Father, to encourage one another in the faith as we fellowship with one another. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to be here with us, especially now as we hear your word and and think on it, consider it. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work this word in our hearts to continue to form and shape us according to the truth of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's great to see some college students, uh, other students here this this morning home from uh, school or here on on spring break. It's uh, such a great time of the year uh, to kind of have a a time, a, a break from from school and, and to come home. Um, just a special time where many young, young people and others go home during spring break. Of course, when a college student says that he or she is, is going home for spring break, they aren't primarily thinking about the house where the family lives, although the building is definitely not unimportant. What college students are primarily thinking of and what they are, are longing to do when they go home, is to be with their family, to be with their parents, their siblings, maybe even grandparents or cousins. They want to be with people with whom they share a common heritage, common beliefs, and common experiences. So going home is good for us. Gathering together with our people encourages us. It strengthens us. It reorients our lives on what is true and right, and that is also what happens when we gather together as a church. We know this, but of course it's still good to be reminded that the church is not this building that we're meeting in today. The church is not this building. The church is the assembly. It's the, it's the gathering of all of you in one place. The building only refers to you know the place where we do this gathering. It provides the opportunity for us to do this gathering, to to gather together as the church, as the people who belong to the Lord Jesus by faith in order to worship, to hear God's word, and to seek to build up one another in the truth. The Lord wants you to know what the church is. He wants you to know what the church is for and how we are to live as the church. And so our passage this morning from the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy focuses on the church. My prayer is that as we meditate together on these verses this morning, that we will see both how, how beautiful and essential the church is for our survival. Our main theme from these uh, few verses here at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that we are to know who we are and how we are to live as the church. Uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy is focused on the church. It's and so far as we've been making our way through it, we've seen the Apostle Paul focusing on both orthodoxy 
and orthopraxy within the church. That is, the church must be sure to teach sound or right doctrine. That's orthodoxy, right doctrine, and have sound or right living. That's orthopraxy. We've seen that, 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 that for the church to be characterized for both right teaching and right living, with men who lead in praying and women who modestly lead lives of faith and love and holiness there in chapter 2. We've also seen, at the beginning of chapter 3, with godly elders who lead and teach the word of God faithfully, along with deacons and deaconesses who are dignified and serve the church faithfully. Now we come to the end of chapter 3, and these verses focused, uh, are focused on what the church is, and what the church believes or confesses. These verses are about our identity as the church of of Jesus Christ. And so our three headings this morning then will focus on the church, what we as the church must pay attention to, what we must understand about ourselves, and how we must live according to what we believe. So the first uh, heading here, verses 14, and the first part of verse 15, the church must pay careful attention to the written texts of Scripture. Verse 14 and 15 again. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. These three verses are located at the center of the entire letter of 1 Timothy, and and here we are given the main purpose that the Apostle Paul had for writing the letter. This is a gift. I love it when the biblical authors help us by making it very clear just why they wrote the letter or the book that they're writing, and here that's what the Apostle Paul does for us. What we understand from this short statement is that this letter was originally intended for just a small group of people who who made up the church in Ephesus. Uh, Timothy was serving as, as a pastoral leader there or overseer for this assembly of believers, and Paul uh, was also personally involved with this congregation. The book of Acts tells us that Paul remained in Ephesus uh, and taught the word of God for over two years at this church's founding. That doesn't mean that Paul knew everyone in the church at this time, but he was probably familiar with many of them, and he wanted to come to them. He wanted to see them. He wanted to teach them some more, but he was delayed. But since there were urgent matters that that he really needed to address with the church, he then wrote this letter so Timothy and the church could, could get to work on addressing these issues prior to Paul's arrival. Paul makes it clear what the main issue was there in verse 15. If I delay I'm writing writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Uh, Other translations may may have it as so that you will know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God or how one should act in the household of God. As we mentioned earlier, this doesn't mean that, that once you walk into the church building, on Sundays, that this is how you should act. I know many moms and dads have stressed with, with their kids that 
And when you're in the church building, your behavior must be far better than it is when you're at home, all right? Or even when you're at school. The kids know they, they may be able to get away with certain things at home, but not at the church. Oh, is that how you're supposed to behave in the church? You may have heard that said a few times. I did when I was growing up. But that's not what Paul means here. He's not talking about just when you're gathering together and you're in the church building, this is how you are, you are to behave. This is how you are to act. And he's not talking about what happens just in the church building. They didn't even have church buildings when he wrote this until like 200 years later. When Paul's writing this, they just met in people's homes. So what Paul's saying here, what he's writing about here, is how the believers are to live out their faith as those who have been saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ. How they are to represent him in the world. How they are to be as the church, as the assembly. This is how we are to behave together as Christians. Paul is saying, church, this is how you ought to live. That's the purpose for the whole letter. Now, of course, since this is an apostle, one who is personally called by Jesus Christ to represent him in the world and to speak for him, the church today can receive this as a letter to us. We can receive these instructions just as the church in Ephesus received them back in the early days. And the main reason we can is because the Lord's apostle didn't just wait to personally deliver these instructions whenever he could make it back to Ephesus himself, but instead he wrote them down in letter form and then sent them on ahead. Again, he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. John Stott, who was a great preacher and commentator um, on Paul's letters, wrote this about verse 14 uh, that I want you to hear this morning and consider. Consider what he says here. This is really something that we should be thanking God for um, as we consider these verses. So here, listen to what he says. He says, Paul senses that he may be delayed, so he writes his instructions for the interim period. Thus, by a deliberate providence of God, the New Testament letters came to be written and have been preserved for the edification of the church in subsequent generations. If the apostles' directions regarding the doctrine, ethics, unity, and mission of the church had been given only in oral form, the church would have been like a mapless traveler and a rudderless ship. But because the apostolic instructions were written down, we know that we would not, uh, we know what we would not otherwise have known. Namely, how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. So just think, what if Paul never wrote to any of the churches that, that he ministered to? What if he never wrote letters to them? What if the only churches to ever have the benefit of the apostles' teaching were just the churches in the first century that had the privilege of having him come and preach and teach for them? What if all we had today 
were the Old Testament scriptures? What if we didn't have the writings of the apostles in the New Testament? Would we even know Christ today? Would we even be here with the hope of eternal life in our hearts? Well, friends, our Lord Jesus has not left us without clear guidance. And he has done it through written texts. That is, words, letters, books that we have together here in in, in this book, the Old and the New Testaments. If we are going to know Christ as he truly is, if we are going to know the way of salvation and the way we ought to live as Christ's people, well, then we must pay careful attention to these written texts. We must know them. We must seek to understand them with the help of the Holy Spirit. We must trust uh, what they say. We must know that this, that this is essential for us to live, to instruct the faith to our children. We must trust that these were written in the first place. Uh, why these were written in, in the first place and why the Lord, by his special providence, has kept them for us throughout the centuries. How do you know how we are to live in this incredibly confused time in the midst of such a crooked generation? How do you know where to look, where, where to turn for foundational truth? Well, you listen to what Christ's spokesmen have written in these texts. That's how you know. Again, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church must pay careful attention to the written texts of Scripture and beware, beware of any church that doesn't. Secondly, the church must understand its great significance in the world. That's in here, uh, the second half of, of verse 15. The church must understand its great significance in the world. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So here in in verse 15, we we are given three different descriptions of the church, three different ways that we are to understand just what this unique institution is that Jesus founded prior to his departure. Uh, There are other descriptions of the church that we we could uh, look for and, and find in the New Testament. The apostles used several different images and metaphors to describe the church and its relationship with Jesus Christ, but we are going to focus this morning just on these three because these are the ones in our text, and they are beautiful descriptions. First, we are to know that the church is the household of God. The church is the household of God. This has been a common word, household, it's been a common word in 1 Timothy thus far, for when Paul was given instructions for the qualifications of the overseers and the deacons of the church, he mentioned how they both must manage their households well. And in 3 verse 5, Paul directly compares the church with the households of overseers. 
So we are to think of the church as a household, as a family, as a group of people who have close personal relationships with each other. For we have the same father, we have the same mother, we have the same Lord and Savior. Our Father is God the Father, who has called us, who has adopted us as his children. When we pray, we are to call him our Father, as Jesus taught us. He is the source of our lives, he is the source of our faith and of our salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. He's our Father. If God is our Father, then the church is our mother. For it's through the church that we have come to know the gospel, through the church that we've been instructed and nourished in the gospel, in the word of God. It's through the church that we've, we've grown up and been a part of all of our lives. It's through the ministry of the church that we have been fed and nurtured our entire lives until the, the Lord calls us to glory. The church is our mother. So within this household, we are to think of ourselves as a family, as brothers, as sisters, as mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in the faith. We are all here not just for ourselves, but we're here also for each other. We are a family, the family of God. Within this household, Christians share a stronger bond than we'll ever share with our biological family. Unless, of course, our biological family are also a part of the church. As Paul describes the, the church in Ephesians 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That is, all who are in one body, the church. We all share those blessings in common. We are united in Christ. The next description we are given in verse 15 is that uh, the household of God um, is also the church of the living God. Household of God is also the church of the living God. Remember the word that's translated church literally means assembly. It means gathering. Paul is pointing us to the gathering of believers, which has happened every Lord's Day since uh, soon after Jesus rose from the dead. The household of God comes together to worship God, to pray to God, to hear God speak through the proclamation of his word and to build up one another in the faith. It is the assembly of the living God because God most clearly manifests his presence when and where the church gathers together. Within this gathering, each week is the time and place where God's presence in the world is especially noticeable. And the very fact that we gather together for the worship of God and to hear him speak is a strong witness to our community and to the world that there is a God. There is a God. He has spoken, and we are all accountable to him, to what he says, and whether or not we want to be or not. 
one of the great historic uh, symbols of the gathering of the church of the living God, has been the church bell. The church bell. They're kind of out of fashion now, of course. Uh, we've moved beyond the church bell, but, but some are still around. Um, here in, uh, in Stanton, every Lord's Day morning, around 8 o'clock, if I'm outside, I can hear church bell ringing uh, from another gathering across town. Just hear that, that, that church bell ring, dong, dong, dong. Have you ever thought, what, what's the purpose of the church bell? Why, why do churches ring bells? Why such a big bell? Dong, dong, dong. When the church bell rings, it is announcing something. It's announcing something to the world around it. It's announcing something to all those who have rejected God, to all, all those who are trying to ignore God, trying to live their lives without any reference at all to God. The church bell rings and it says God is real. He is here. We are his people. We are gathering together. You cannot ignore him. You must deal with him. Now, we may not have a bell here at our church, but still, still our very gathering together here every Lord's Day with neighbors driving by and seeing our cars parked around this building, it's, it's a reminder. It's a reminder to them. There is a God. There is a God. He is real. He lives. This is evidence of it. His people are here. You must come to terms with the reality of God. For judgment is coming. The final description in verse 15 is that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, the truth has been one of the main themes of this letter. It will continue to be. The truth is the faith. It's been called the faith or the sound doctrine. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is to be then a pillar and buttress or foundation of the gospel, of the doctrine, of the truth. Paul uses uh, the metaphor here of a large building to describe the role of the church in, in what it does with God's truth. Since it is the foundation of the truth, the church must hold on to the truth and keep it steady against all the storms of false teaching, all the storms of, of, of unbelief, the, 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 the pressure uh, that those on the outside and even some on the inside will put on us to change the truth, to, to hide the truth, to let go of the truth, or simply just to compromise with the world on certain points of the truth. The church must uphold and undergird the truth that God has revealed to us in Christ in these written texts. The church must also be a pillar. It's a pillar. That, that is, it must hold up the truth 
so that it can be seen. It can be seen and admired by the world as, as pillars stretch out and hold up tall buildings for all to see. The church must also hold up the truth for all to see, making the gospel known to the world. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we make the gospel known? How do we hold up the truth? Well, that's the message here of verse 16. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The church must live out the mystery of godliness before the world. Great indeed, it says, or beyond any question, without a doubt, this mystery of godliness is exceedingly great. That's what this is saying. And what is this mystery of godliness? What's Paul talking about here? Well, Paul likes to refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the mystery. We sang about the mystery, that last song before the sermon. It, it, it just outlines the, the mystery of godliness. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus Christ saving his people. Now, the mystery, of course, is, is not, you know, to be understood in the sense of trying to piece together different clues, you know, finding these different clues and putting them all together in order to figure out what this mystery is. No, the mystery of the gospel is something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. More like opening up a birthday present that's been carefully wrapped. You can't tell what's inside until you open it up. And there it is. It's revealed. The mystery now is revealed. And you're able to enjoy the gift. That's the gospel. That's the mystery of godliness. God had announced his intentions of redeeming his people through an anointed one, through a son of David. And now that anointed one has been revealed. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And verse 16 points out, uh, that that mystery is the church's confession of faith. This is the doctrine. This is the truth that the church is to uphold and to display for the world to see. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the story of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our story. It's a summary of the gospel. It's a clear reminder for us that the gospel, the way that God saves sinners, is not through some self-help program. There's no list of steps that you must work through in order to have your life transformed and make yourselves acceptable in God's sight. It's a story about somebody else, about Jesus and what he has done and who he is. The gospel is good news. It is an announcement of something extraordinary that has already been accomplished. It is the mission and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which has saved us. And the church is made up of those who have believed this message and, and received Christ as Lord and Savior. It, it is by faith you have been saved. Faith in what? Faith in Christ and what he accomplished for us 
in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. Which, of course, is what verse 16 is describing for us. He was manifested in the flesh, that is, in the incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, so that he could become the Redeemer and die in the place of sinful humanity, representing us perfectly, enduring enduring God's wrath for sins on the cross. And that he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is referring to his resurrection. When the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he confirmed that everything Jesus ever said or did was truth. It was true. He was who he said he was. Jesus was rejected by the world and being condemned by sinners to the cross. He was, though, approved by God the Spirit who vindicated him by raising him from the dead, showing the world that he was not guilty, but he was righteous. He's righteous before God, and he is Lord. And he was seen by angels. Well, we know from the Gospels that angels were witnesses to both Christ's birth and his resurrection. Uh, This makes it clear that the mystery of godliness, the mystery of the gospel, is known both in heaven as well as on earth to those visible and invisible. They are aware of who Jesus is and his significance. They know what's going on. They are aware. They see him. And he was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. This, This point uh, the, these, these two things point to the mission that Christ gave his apostles uh, and the church to us just prior to his ascension into heaven. He said in Luke 24, verses 47 through 48, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. That is exactly What's happened? Christ has been proclaimed by the church to the nations. But we know the work is not over yet. The work is still ongoing. As the pillar and buttress of the truth, the church must continue to hold up the truth of the gospel, proclaiming it until all have heard. We must persevere in the work and not lose heart, trusting that More will believe, more will receive, more will come as we do this. And finally, he was taken up into glory. Taken up in glory. This is his his ascension to heaven to sit on the throne at God's right hand. Christ, our King, is in glory. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is working out his plan of redemption through us, through the church of the living God, through the pillar and buttress of the truth. When we go out to proclaim his name and we live in this fallen world as as those who have been forgiven, as those who are walking in newness of life, as those who have been transformed by the Spirit, we are serving the risen King of kings and Lord of lords who will one day return in glory just as he departed and bring his kingdom onto the earth. That is the mystery of godliness. We are to live our lives according to this confession, to this truth.
our lives are to be marked by this good news. Yesterday morning, Greta and I uh, were at a funeral at uh, the church that I used to serve at in Northwest Iowa. It was for a church member, a friend of ours, who died suddenly last weekend at the age of 44, uh, Eric. Eric and his wife Annie had only been married for 11 years, but in that 11 years, they had six boys. Oldest is 10, youngest was born in November. So it was a hard funeral. And uh, after the funeral, uh, as, I, as I hugged Annie, his wife, and tried to come up with some consoling words uh, to say to her, two things came to my mind that I want to also share with you. As I watched her walk into the service with all six of her boys in tow, all had John Deere hats on, just like their dad, following the coffin of her husband and, and their daddy, I could feel the weight of responsibility that was now on her shoulders. The whole room could sense it. And it almost crushed me. How will she be able to do this? But then just a few moments later, one of the elders of the church got up to lead us in singing a hymn together. And I looked around and I saw a little over 300 people in that room singing, many of them with tears in their eyes. And I realized... She's not alone. She's not alone. She and those boys are not alone. She is a part of this family. This is a family. This is a household which has been commanded by our Lord to bear one another's burdens. And I know, I know the people there. I know them. I've experienced how they do this. She will be surrounded by people who love her and who love those boys because they love Jesus, because they're living out the gospel in their lives. And so I reminded her of that. I, knew, I, I know she knew that, but I wanted her to, to see it and be reminded, you are not alone. You're a part of this family. And friends, that is the great privilege of belonging to the household of God. What a blessing it is. I can't imagine anyone in a similar situation trying to figure out, how do I carry this weight? How do I do this? Without having a church family, surrounding them and bearing it for them. And there's another thing that was very clear to me in that service yesterday. You never know when your time will come. You never know. You are not in control. As God's word says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So you better make sure that you are prepared for that day that you don't know when it will happen. 
And one of the most loving things that you can do for your family is to make it clear to them by how you live, by how you behave, that you know and love the Lord Jesus. Don't leave them to wonder. Don't leave any question in their minds. Make sure that they know without any doubt by how you live, by how you worship each week, that you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and you have submitted yourself under his lordship. Let me tell you, that was a great blessing and a wonderful comfort yesterday that Eric had provided for his wife and sons. They had no doubt. They had no doubt where he is now. They know he is not apart from Christ. He's now away from the body, but he is at home with the Lord. And I hope that you will do the same for your family. Give them that gift. But if you know that you don't know the Lord in that way, you don't know the Lord like that, you haven't experienced what I've been describing. You know you don't really have a relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you're not following him even though you've claimed that you do. You haven't tasted the joy of knowing that you'll be granted eternal life, not based on anything you've ever done or earned, but only on what Jesus has accomplished for you in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. If that's you, well then I invite you this morning to simply admit to the Lord in prayer that you are a sinner. You are a sinner who desperately needs his forgiveness and righteousness. And thank him for dying for your sins on the cross. And humbly ask him to come into your life to rule in your heart and help you to follow his word. Turn away from the life you were living before and follow Jesus. Trust what he says. And then join together with other sinners like us who have had their lives transformed by Christ and become a member of the household of God, the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you really have spoken to each of us today as we've listened to what you've said in this written text, that your spirit has moved and worked in our hearts and lives, that we have heard you speak. I pray that we would put our trust firmly in you as our Lord and our Savior. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.